to turn to Luke chapter 7. Last week we began a series of messages entitled The Word of the Church, and we continue that today. Luke chapter 7. Today the, uh, the title of the message is God in the House. If you found that scripture, if you will stand to honor the reading of God's Word, please. Dr. Luke writes these words. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with the hair of her head, kissing them and anointing them with fragrant oil. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, say it, he said. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave both them. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly. Turning, he told him, and turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, and she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with fragrant, fragrant oil. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, and that, that's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll take this portion of our word, of your word today, and you'll apply it to our hearts and lives that we can hear from you. Lord, we're so desperately in need of a word from you. We pray that you'll be in this place today and that you'll peer into the very depths of our hearts and you'll reveal our attitudes and our motives and everything that you need to bring to the forefront in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I heard a local well-known preacher say these words. He was speaking to a large group of believers. This is what he said. He said, as believers, we are charged with going into this world and telling people what God has done for us, in us, and through us. And, the, and then when we tell that story, the Holy Spirit will do His work and some people will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, it then becomes our task to bring them back into the church for them to grow in maturity, for them to grow in grace, for them to grow in strength, for them to grow in knowledge, for them to be a part of the community of faith that we know as the church. But this, quest, this preacher pose this question, what is it exactly that we bring them back into? Do they come to a place 
where they continually sense and feel and know God's presence. Better said, better ask, is God in the house? My prayer for us for all these years that I've been with you has been when we gather together that God will be in the house. And yet as we crisscross this country, as we see the culture of American churches, too often we find that people come to churches and are worried, to church and they're all worried about the wrong things. They're worried about, did she really wear that to church? Did he really look like that? You know, who got my seat? My parking lot's all, my parking place all taken, taken up. We look at all the wrong things instead of, is God in the house? Now I want to say this to you and I want to put them on the screen. And since you don't have any outline, you can write down what you would like today. <clears throat> is that when God is in the house, there are, some, there are some reasons. And these are bullet points. We'll get to the message in a second. When God is in the house, first of all, he has been invited. The Pharisee invited Jesus into the house. Now, we don't know why. Brother Simon, Sunday school teacher, a deacon, invited Jesus into the house. We know how the relationship with Jesus and the Pharisees ended up. It ended up with them having him killed. But when Jesus comes into the house, he has been invited. I heard Ann Graham Lott say many years ago that Jesus is a perfect gentleman. He only comes in where he's invited. And where he's been dismissed, he will not force his way in. He didn't force his way into Bethlehem, into the finest hotel. He left the only place that was open for him. When God is in the house, he's been invited. <clears throat> the second thing that I want you to, to glean this morning is that when God is in the house, people know it. If you read this story, you discover that this lady, as we will, as we will develop in just a second, she was not invited. But she heard that Jesus was in the house. People will know when Jesus is in the house. We've said many times in this room there are places that you go and when you walk into the room you can just sense God's presence. I would to God. My prayer of my life is that every time somebody walks on this property that they can sense God's presence. The third thing I'll say to you is when God is in the house, when God is in the house, people will want to be there because people want to be where Jesus is and they'll show up. Did you realize that God wrote into the DNA of mankind to have a relationship with him? It's written into our DNA. In fact, if you look back at Adam and Eve, God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It's written right there. And even after the fall, the desire to walk with God is still there. And when, and when people know that he's there, they'll show up. And finally, and most importantly, when God is in the house, lives are changed. For too long, we have, we have accepted the premise that people get saved and continue their old behavior. I cannot imagine walking into the presence of God and walking out unchanged. I know every time in my prayer life, when I feel like that the manifest presence of God has fallen around, Something has to change. Because he's holy, I'm not. Now, if we want people to know that God is in the house, if we want people to respond to God being in the house, if we want lives to be changed if God is in the house, then the question before us becomes very simple. How do we get God 
in the house. And in this setting and for this text, the question may be, what kind of worship is it that attracts the very presence of God? I believe that we can lift from this story five things that will help us, help us to understand what it is that attracts God's presence. And if God's going to be in the house, I think we'll find some or all of these there that we find in the life of this lady. First of all, she was desperate for God. She was desperate for God. The Pharisee threw a party. It got out that Jesus was going to be there. She was an uninvited guest. This was a hugely patriarchal. Oracle society. That means the men were in charge. The women didn't go anywhere they weren't invited. And she literally elbowed her way in to get there and stand behind Jesus. Because she knew who she was. She knew that she needed Jesus. And nothing was going to stop her. She was desperate. This week I read a story. You may not appreciate it like I did. Every now and then in the office I'm reading these stories. And, and Wanda just hears me cackle in the other room and wants to know what's next. Picture this, a senior adult retirement home, a card table, four ladies sitting around the card table playing whatever card game they want to, bridge, rook, rummy, it doesn't matter. And as they're playing cards and talking, they look over at the door and in walks this tall, good-looking gentleman. And they immediately recognize that he is a new guy. So the first one says, well, hey, well, hello, you're new here, yeah. Second one says, uh, where did you uh, move from? He said, I just got out of San Quentin prison. <laughs> A little silence and next, the third lady said, well, what were you in there for? He said, I murdered my wife. There was a pregnant pause there, and the fourth lady sat up in her chair and said, so you're single then, huh? <laughs> I call that being desperate. How long has it been since you've been desperate for God? How long has it been since you've been desperate for a, a fresh touch from God? How long has it been since you've been desperate for Jesus to have rule and reign in your life? This woman was desperate. She knew who she was. She knew what she was. She knew what she needed. And she knew that in Jesus, it was Jesus the one that had taken uh, sin-sick lives and healed them. He was the one that had healed the sick. He is the one that had raised the dead. He is the one that had given sight to the blind. She knew who Jesus was, and she had become desperate for Jesus. How long has it been since you've been desperate for Jesus? How long has it been since we've been desperate to have Jesus in the house? Second thing I'll suggest to you from her is that, is that not only do we have to be desperate for God, but we kind of have to diagnose our own condition. Diagnose our own condition. May I say this to you when it comes to sin and life? If you don't diagnose your own condition, others will do so for you. Is it interesting to anybody but, but me that Dr. Luke recognizes this woman. Not, this is not Sue from down the road. This is not Jane from across the street. This is not the woman who sells uh, a cloth. He says, and a woman in the town who was 
a sinner. May I suggest to you that the very reason that she came to see Jesus is because even before Luke wrote these words, she knew that she was a sinner. I believe it was her own diagnosis of her life that pushed her to being so desperate for Jesus. And I submit that today, that one of the reasons that we're not desperate for Jesus is we think we're pretty good. We think we have things under control. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are sitting in the jail, and those jails were not like ours that are concrete and, and above-ground buildings. Generally, it was some kind of hole in the ground that was secured by bars. It was cold and wet, and at midnight, they were singing praises to Jesus because he was the living Savior. And at midnight, the earthquake came and the jails flew open and the jailer was about to take his own life. And when they didn't run away because they knew it was better to be in jail with Jesus than have their civil freedom and apart from Jesus, he walked in, he said, what must I do to be saved? He now had seen in their lives something that he needed. He diagnosed his own condition. Now, may I say this quickly for all those deep theologians out here. I understand that for us to diagnose our condition, I understand it is the work of the Holy Spirit that begins in our heart. But listen, brothers and sisters, it doesn't take the work of the Holy Spirit for you and I to recognize that all have sinned and fallen short and I am one that has sinned and fallen short. Her desperation for Jesus, our desperation for Jesus will only be driven when we realize that our condition is just like hers, a sinner. Every week we gather in this room, there's at least one person, I believe, who needs to understand their own condition. It doesn't matter if we meet 50 times a week, 50 times a year, or 100 times a year. It doesn't matter if we had a, have a crowd of 15 or 1,500. Someone always needs to come to the knowledge of their own condition. What is your condition today before God? If you were to, if you were to stand before the one who has the eyes of fire that looks all the way to your soul. The one that has the, the hair that's beyond speakable. The one who has the voice like the sound of a trumpet. The one who knows all, as I'm just about to say. How would you stand before him today? I mean, this brings an interesting point. When you read this story, this is almost comical. It's not really a part of the message, so I'm going to give it to you for free. But I think it's interesting and serves as a reminder to us. This woman comes in and she stands behind Jesus weeping. The only thing she probably has is that flask in her hand of that expensive oil. And then at some point she begins to weep. And I can see her as he is sitting there with his legs behind him. I can see her at some point becoming so overwhelmed by her emotion that she's on her knees. And now her tears are, are dropping on his feet. And so she begins with her hair to wipe his feet. Because she realizes that in the, in the presence of such purity that she is so unworthy. Now watch this. Brother Simon. That's the Pharisee's name. You did pick up on that. Brother Simon. 
Again, the Sunday school teacher, the deacon, the, the leader, the elder, whoever he was in Jewish culture, began to, watch this. This is the, this is the wonderful thing. It says, uh, um, verse 39, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself. Now, remember, this is not being sold, told out in, where everybody can hear. He is just thinking it. And he says, this man, if he were really a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus, knowing what he's thinking, turned to him and answers him. You know how that serves as a reminder to us? That everything we think, everything we say, every attitude we have, every agenda we put forward, everything that we do is under the watchful eye of our Lord Jesus. Nothing escapes his notice Nothing escapes his knowledge. But think about this. We've pictured her as she has now fallen to her knees. And she's weeping on the feet of Jesus and, and, rub, and uh, washing his feet with her tears, rubbing it with her hair. And she's being criticized. And she hears what Jesus tells this man. No way she couldn't. Which brings us to the third thought for the day. Is that if God is going to be in the house, you're going to have to dismiss ungodly criticism. When I think of worship and serving and praising Him, focusing our lives on Him, here's what I'll suggest to you. You take a new, fresh approach to the worship and service of Jesus, and you're going to be criticized. And in many churches, it's going to be, well, we don't do that around here. Yeah, we never did it like that. What do you mean? And we began to be distracted. Yesterday, pulled up an email in the office from Steve Sellers of the Alabama Children's Home, and he sent this story, and I thought it was very apropos. My husband and I, he, he received this, and he shared it with us. It's written by a lady that says, My husband and I went to see our six-year-old granddaughter participate in a school field competition. One of the events was like the 100-yard dash. Some of the youngsters, including my granddaughter, did not reach the goal or receive a prize because they were constantly looking back rather than concentrating on pushing forward. They were thrown off course. The ground they had gained on those behind them was lost, and they did not reach their goal. The same thing happens in our spiritual life when we constantly look back and become preoccupied with the mistakes of the past. Holding on to the memories of past sin can cause us to lose heart. And we do not reach our objective. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I just wonder how many in this room would would think about a time in your life when you made a fresh commitment to God. And then in no time at all, criticism becomes begin to come your way. 
And, when, and in the midst of criticism, it's much easier to hear the voice of the criticizer than the voice of the crucified one. It's easy to take your hand off the plow and become distracted. Jesus is the only one to whom our allegiance is due. Our hearts, our souls, our passions belong to him. And if the world is to ever know of his love and his grace, it will be when his people have the courage to dismiss ungodly criticism and determine to give him our best. Between dismissing the ungodly criticism and determining to do our best, there's one other thing that I, that I believe is worth noting in this text. And that is that we discern our own forgiveness. Now I say discern because define, discern says to notice something, especially after thinking about it carefully. While the Pharisees, as Pharisees will do, was condemning this sinful woman in, in his mind, Jesus turned the table on him. How he does that. Brother Simon was criticizing her. And Jesus told this story. You don't have something to say to you, say it. And then he tells this story. A creditor has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. And since he could not pay it back, he graciously forgave. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon the watch translation would say, now backed into a corner, said, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him, turning to the woman. Here's what he said. You see this woman? I entered your house. And you gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loves much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then the woman heard everything that she wanted to hear when Jesus turned and faced her and he said, Honey, your sins are. Who's been forgiven more in this room? In our hymn books is a hymn entitled, I Stand Amazed. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Another writer wrote, I stand amazed of the love that he gave me. Bought me and saved me. You know, I stand amazed today. People think I make this up when I make this statement and I'm being self-deprecating, but I'm about to back up what I'm about to say. I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer. If you were to go look at my high school transcripts, you would find that I probably 
out of a class of the graduated 83, uh, 83 in the class, Kelly, I probably graduated 68, 70. I was, you was lower than that? Okay. I was a low C student at best. I could, I could if, you if you think I still murdered the King's English, you'd have heard me back then. Who would have thought that God would take a country boy that's such a has such lack of an intellect and call him to a ministry of speaking and writing. I stand amazed. And here's what I'll tell you folks is that when we see ourselves in light of God, in light of His holiness, His purity, in light of His love, I suggest to you that all of us will get a fresh picture of the forgiveness that it took to bring us from where we were to where we are. If God's going to be in the house, I believe that we have to come face to face with the forgiveness that it takes. And the only people who can forgive are the folks who've been forgiven. But there's one last thought here if we're going to invite God into the house and he's actually going to come one thing that we need to be ready to do that she did and that is determine to give God your very best determine to give God nothing invokes and invites the presence of God like Giving him all that we have and all that we are. No strings attached. Not holding on to anything. And then we, we learned several things from this woman. I could go on four or five things, but would you just let me suggest three to you as we end today? First, I think it's symbolic that she gave him her tears. It is obvious to me that she knew how much she needed a Savior. And that in the presence of someone so pure, her heart was broken that she was so wicked. In those tears, we see her repentance. We see her heart broken about the sin that she's committed. It slapped her in the face, standing there with him, that there's none righteous and I lead the pack. That all have sinned and I lead the pack. Theologians tell us that she was probably a prostitute. And it is in those tears of repentance that she gave him her very best. And she says, I know what I've been. And I know that I can do nothing on my own to change it. But I come to you and I give it to you. I wonder about people today who walk an aisle, whom I talk to and are ready to pray to receive Christ, and there is no godly sorrow. If God is in the house, we need to remember that the first message John the Baptist preached was repent. The first message that Jesus preached after his uh, temptation was repent. The message that he gave to the churches in Revelation was Repent. And the re message for us today is repent. 
Repent don't just mean being sorry for your sin. Repent means turning from your sin. If there is no repentance, there is no salvation. That's the first thing she gave him was her tears. And listen, these weren't just a few tears that run down the cheek. When she, when she knelt down behind him close to his feet, obviously her tears flowed so freely that they covered those dirty feet. So she offered him the second thing. You're going to think this is trite. She offered him her hair. Think about that. Paul writes in Corinthians that hair is the glory of a woman. And it's obvious that those ladies wore hair longer than most ladies today. But watch this. I can see her reaching around after she has wept on his feet and uh, uh, began to clean his feet. That she takes her hair around her head, her glory, and she begins to dry those feet, to clean them. Now look, you may not think that's a big deal. But can you imagine in the aftermath of that, what she had to do in that day and time to clean her hair? It was her glory. It was her best. Our personal gift of our personal best and our personal glory offered to him will be returned many fold. I mean, after all, she offered this to him and she ultimately received forgiveness of her sin because of her broken heart and her offering her best. The last thing that I would suggest, and we will move quickly, is she had that fragrant oil. She had that flask of oil. And, and the suggestion is this was probably the most expensive thing she had. In other words, she held nothing back from Jesus. If God's going to come into the house, might I suggest that we need to offer him our best at every level. That we need to understand both what our sinful condition is as well as how much forgiveness is required. And then we'll get connected to him and we begin to worship him in spirit and in truth and in passion. If criticism comes, dismiss it and stay focused on him. And the only reason that you and I will ever do that is because we've become desperate for Jesus. Are you desperate today? The question I ask you this morning Collectively, is God in the house? But I want to ask you a more question, a more personal question: Is God in the house?